Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unmuted by Big Karma, the podcast in which entertainment insiders reveal their secret shows and how the stuff we love is made. Big Karma produces video games starring kick-ass action heroes who never reach their visibility to win. And you can find out more about that on patreon.com slash bigkarma. My fantastic guest today is Phil Renta, who has been seeing pretty much all the growth of the creator economy, starting very early at full screen, and then at Studio 71, then heading creators for Mob Crush, Facebook. Nowadays, he's dabbling into the metaverse with one whole Labs, and that's another uh, topic we get into a lot here in this show. Without further ado, hi, Phil. Hello, so, so great to be here. Thank you so much for joining. I'm so happy to start the year with you. And I got so many topics to get into with you as both big gaming fans. It's a bit blurry in your background, so people probably cannot tell. But these are all video games. Oh, yeah. that's uh, starts with the Atari 2600 back there and then goes all the way down through the generations. Yeah. Yeah, my kind of, my kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I guess that leads to a light question. What's your favorite game of all of them in the in the back right there? Are the top three because otherwise it's too hard, right? It's too hard. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, the Super Nintendo generation is the one that always stuck with me. So you know, Final Fantasy three, which Final Fantasy six Japan is probably my favorite game of all time. But you know, that Chrono Trigger, Secret of Mana, like oh. everything of that time. I think it just brings back the nostalgia of that time too. But Square um, South before it was Square Enix. Exactly, yeah. Back when uh, when Enix was still doing the Dragon Warrior series, which I also loved. So Dragon <laughs> Warrior 4 for the 8-bit Nintendo was one of those games that I kept renting from Blockbuster over and over. But because it was a role-playing game, I had to start over each time. So it was like a you know 20-hour game. I would get really far over the weekend, have to return it, and then start over next weekend, you know? That was your terrible choice. Yes. My terrible choice was to play Final Fantasy VI in Japanese. Oh my gosh, that in is no a terrible speaking choice. Japanese. That's tough because it's such a beautiful story. It's, you know, what, 13 <laughs> I, characters that all have a story to them? I'm wondering, I think I probably still had the best strategy to beat the game versus your strategy of renting it at Blockbuster. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, in Final Fantasy too, you have to talk to people in the town and get clues. Like, you can't really do that. In Japanese, you just have to kind of stumble on the answer, I suppose. And everyone, you still have your friends at school, you know. Yeah, you have to stumble upon it. And then it's like right. a quest where your friends tell you, oh, I found this there. Right, there was right. This old guy. But it becomes a month quest. Yeah. In, but it beats waiting for the U.S. version because back then it was a year or two before we had the, the, the English-speaking version. Right, right. That was explosive. Yeah, I mean... It was like that. I mean, so few RPGs came out during that time. Like, even when they were starting to pick up on Super Nintendo, maybe one every two or three months. So everybody who's an RPG fan, when the one came out, it was a opening night. You buy it, you play it over and over and over and over again. It was, I mean, it was a magical time. My bad habit of starting to play in Japanese was because they never imported Final Fantasy V. They oh, went brutal, straight yeah. from four to th to six. So yeah. two was number four, six was number three, and they they were skipping the episodes. And Final oh, yeah. Fantasy V was so beautiful. 
A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, they, they came out later with anthologies that were translated to English and I played them then, but I didn't have the guts to play them in Japanese. You're made of tougher stuff than me. <laughs> maybe I was just more bored. Yeah. More Belgium. bored or more stubborn maybe too. Yeah. We have a very long winter in Belgium, you know, right, like right. Finland. <laughs> we yeah. have to get good at online stuff and video games. That makes sense. All right. You and I met through Mob Crush. But yeah. and then you moved into Facebook into a similar role of dealing with creators. But long before that, YouTube Rewind of some sort, you were with full screen at the very beginning of the YouTube rule, weren't you? Yeah, um, yeah. I was employee number nine at full screen. I was the first one hired to um, look over the network. Back when we didn't even really know what a network was. We just knew we had the functionality to bring creators into our um, economic engine, the YouTube CMS, and then sell branded campaigns against them and see aggregate statistics and then monetize their channel. And then we just kind of figured it out as we went. Was it already a multi-channel network model or did that come along the way? So that was the, it was started as a multi-channel network model. So George Strompolis, yeah, George Strompolis, the CEO of Full Screen was the partner manager at YouTube who was working with Machinima. So he got to see Machinima do the multi-channel network strategy, said, hey, this is cool. I should start my own. Left YouTube, started full screen. So he was already versed in how it worked. I think when I came in, though, it was the, there was still like a handful of creators that were on it who were, you know, contacts of George's from the YouTube days, but they didn't really know how to scale. So really, I just took, what I do best when I've worked on social platform stuff before that, I just put together a structure of this is our pitch. This is how we get all of our leads. This is how we outreach. This is how we bring people on. This is how we service them. So I was just building process. And seven months after joining, we were bigger than Machinima. We were the largest MCN in the world. That's yeah. And I remember fondly Machinima. It was yeah. such a phenomenon at its time it and great. a precursor. Um, it, so how fast was the growth, though? Because from the outside, it looked like full screen grew tremendously for us. Oh, yeah. Both in it terms was... of ad counts and yeah. revenue. Oh, yeah. It was uh, it was very fast. Yeah. I mean, I went from employee number nine, all sitting at picnic tables, to us outgrowing the space because my team was 25 people within three months. So really what it took was I had to prove out the model. So it was just me. And I put together the workflow of reaching out and signing. And then how do we tell people how to grow and how do we get them out to market for sales and blah, blah, blah. And then after a couple months, I went, hey, guys, I've been here a couple months and already we've got, you know, another 400 million monthly views, <laughs> right? Like this is laddering up to more than my yearly salary. We should scale this team like crazy. It's fishing in blue waters. So I think at that time I asked Ezra, the COO, who was my boss, I was like, I think I said we need to hire 30 people. And I think he said you get 10. So I immediately <laughs> went out. It was the weirdest thing ever. Like we we put out a bunch of calls everywhere to hire people. And I think that out of pretty much everyone that walked in the door, like I would say four out of every five people that walked in the door for an interview, we hired on the spot or the next day because we just needed heads so we were just like on board, fresh out of college. We didn't care if you were somebody who wanted to learn about the space, come on in. And out of that group was like Andrew Graham, who's now at CAA, 
and uh, 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 John Brents, who's at Twitch, and Jordan Warona, who's the CEO of We Are Verified. Like that that initial batch was a lot of people who were essentially coming into an entry level job and now are leaders of the industry. So it was the starting ground of the what we call today influencer marketing, but back yeah. then the world was not existing, was it? Right. Yeah. At that time it was, I mean, it was really hard. 2012 trying to pitch brands. I mean, the only reason why we got any brands in 2012 was because Peter Chernin was our investor. He was real in really well at Fox and Chernin Entertainment. So we were able to do the branded campaign for Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Or he would introduce us to someone at Pepsi through his thing and we were able to do like a couple $1,000 tweets. Like, Almost nothing. Really, the business model that time was based around, well, let's scale it. Let's help these creators. Let's. We were taking, at that time, a revenue split. And my goal for my team was make sure you're adding a heck of a lot more value than the revenue split you're taking. And we'll figure it out as we go along, right? So where we really focused was programming strategy and optimization because that was something we could control. There was a lot of people who were large on YouTube but didn't know why. So if we can unpack that and look at the data, we could help them become bigger than they were already, which I would say in many cases worked. In some cases, you know, people signed and they didn't see the growth they wanted. But, you know, at least we were taking swings. Yeah, you, you win some, you lose some. As always with tenants in, in, in any industry, I always say the difference between a bookmaker and a gambler mm-hmm. is that the bookmaker is right 80% of the time. Right. Oh, absolutely. He doesn't have a magic formula. He's still taking bets, but yeah. it's just better at it than the next guy. <laughs> well, that's the funniest thing about working with creators is I think that unlike Hollywood for a hundred years or television, there was an understanding in Hollywood and television that your, your career did not go up into the right. You were never going to be more famous. There was always going to be peaks and valleys and your job was to surround yourself with a management team that can help you navigate the valleys and keep you relevant as long as you can. And most people in Hollywood TV, like you get one big movie and then maybe you'll get a moderate movie and maybe you'll disappear. or Maybe you'll get <laughs> spot on. T- like that's kind of the trajectory, but because creators didn't know that, I think that any of them that got a video that got 10 million views would be pretty upset if their next video got a million views and they just didn't understand that there's algorithms at play and maybe the fandom you built behind you wasn't true fandom. And so it was like, it was a lot of education. It still is, right? When I talk to yeah. digital celebrities, a lot of them don't know why they're famous or they they think they're famous for the wrong reason. And it's about kind of re-educating them on what's working and what's not and how they can curate their career to, to point in the right direction. I think it's common in all entertainment industries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wasn't it a say in Hollywood that from a very famous Disney executive or one of these companies who was saying the truth about Hollywood, what I've learned after 30, 40 years is that nobody knows anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that was a William Goldman quote. Yeah. Nobody knows that anything. That might be. Yeah. <laughs> and Christian Segestrale in gaming, who has been extremely successful as an entrepreneur and CEO at various companies that he started himself and other that he helped. Anyway, a super great track record. Yeah. And he keeps saying, I consider myself a student of the job. Yeah. And I don't, it sounds like a great quote, but it's not made up. I know him enough to know that he means it. Yeah. I understand what he means. No matter how much you know, there's always something new to learn. 
Oh, yeah. And once you think you understood a couple of things, they change the algorithm on the biggest platform. Oh, which, yeah. which is a good segue. How many changes of algorithm completely changed your business in your few years at full screen? Oh, Did you yeah, have well, to reinvent the model all the time? Yeah, throughout my end, I would I've been working on content on social platforms now for 17 years. And my whole career has been a free fall where you're trying constantly trying to keep up with <laughs> trends and algorithm changes. And part of my life is that I like that, right? I, I get like if it's a well-established business, I don't Me think too. I can be helpful. <laughs> and I think that ultimately, like I was the only time I've ever worked at a non-startup in my life was Facebook. And I feel like Facebook was never a perfect fit for me because my first thing when I go into Facebook is how do I change this entire model? Like, how do I build, build, build so that we can find something really groundbreaking and successful? And I quickly learned that at large companies, that's not how they think, right? They think about like small incremental changes, risk aversion. That's ultimately why many of them fall behind and why startups are able to kind of enter the slipstream. They're not wrong, right? They've got shareholders to, to hold on to. But what I like is, for example, the company I went to after Facebook, I've been at a metaverse company for a year and a half. And I've had a lot of people say, the first time I ever heard the word metaverse was from you when you joined that company. And now Facebook's changed their name to Meta. Is that where Wormhole Labs? That's Wormhole Labs, yeah. yeah. Right. So it's, yeah, I mean, right. I, I love joined, that because there was not that buzzword about metaverse like there is now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, it's one of those, like when you're working in bleeding edge tech, a lot of it is educating the market. And a lot of it is also gambling on where the market's going to go. And luckily you don't have to be psychic to do it. You look at where the hockey sticking markets are and where the youth trends are. And those usually continue going in that direction, right? Like all the people right now that say NFTs are a fad, it's like, if you look at where the VC funding's going and you look at, you know, the amount of smart people that are going to that market and you see the amount of loyalty and how many, how it's building, it would be naive to think that it's just going to disappear tomorrow, right? So you either right. learn how to play along or you get left behind. You can say bomb or space invaders is a fad. You right. can say video games is a fad. Yeah. Some right. of these NFTs are fads. Right, not oh, the sure. whole movement, not the the pinning uh, technology yeah. and where everything is going. It's like the internet in the beginning. There will right. be an Amazon that emerges and an yeah. eBay, right? Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> and then and there frankly, will be a Yahoo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of people say NFTs are a fad, and that's exactly right. the The current state of NFTs probably are a fad, right? Like the idea of like buy a JPEG, join a Discord, right? There's only so many of those that can do well. There's a lot, it's the buried entry is very small, right? Like any kid in a dorm room in an hour can do a generative art project and then open a discord and say, this is worth a hundred dollars. And people go, no, it's not right. So <laughs> they'll, they'll always be like the bored apes and the crypto punks that do very well. But yes. the people who are going to do great in NFTs are the ones that are thinking about this in terms of like, what, how do we level the prices so that uh, non-crypto enthusiasts and non-speculators will get in? Like, I think that, you know, uh, like Blanco's block party in the gaming world is doing it really well. Oh, Cause yeah. like for $10, you can get a, a skin. It's an NFT, but it's a skin. They're cool. They look like Funko pops. The game is pretty cool. It's got a ways to develop, but like you see what they're doing. They're doing the underpinnings of like these characters will be interoperable. Bunch of bunch of games within mythical. And you're, if you get in early, it's super cool and you can gain levels along with your skins and sure you can resell them. But if you're playing for the speculative nature of it, 
probably not having as much fun as the people who are playing it more like a Fortnite, where it's like, look at how cool I am in my skin, you know? Yeah, definitely. But I agree with you. I, I, I'm like this since 1998. My career, I come accidentally. I was there at the beginning of the internet. Yeah. And, you know, I grew with it and winging it. And then, yeah. But then I became addicted to, like you, to finding the next trend. And what is the next small thing that is bubbling over there? China in 2001, then right. Apple App Store, Facebook Gaming when it started, then YouTube. I was there a little bit later than you, 2013 or something. But there were still many dollars, and most people were saying, ah, no, we can't figure it out. This influence thing, we don't understand it. And, and, and then all of a sudden it peaked. So, and, and I agree with you. I like to be there at the beginning. Because this yeah. is when you innovate, when you toy around, where you make the most meaningful relationship, right. where you understand the foundation. And I know it's a saying in VC, too early, too early, too late. Right, but right. That's when you invest money because you're in a race to maximize. When you're an entrepreneur, you have the time to say, I'm going to go in too early. And when you flock in, I'm going to have a toll. At the yeah. entrance of the bridge. <laughs> well, you you never truly lose when you jump into a market early because you're learning, right? So even Absolutely. even if your company goes out of business, which I have worked on so many failing projects, this is like my anti-resume. I have failed so many times in my career, but too, every man. single time, I, what's that? <laughs> Me too, man. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean it's part of the game, right? When you're jumping, like I'm, I'm, I have. I, I'm not even going to get into all the failures, but one thing that I comes out of it is if you learn a lot about say VR in 2016, when there was that gold rush and then like the headsets never caught up, I learned a ton about VR and that knowledge of VR helped me when I went over to Facebook to talk to the Oculus team. Like it kept, got me ahead of the game in terms of like the, the emotions behind true presence and joining VR chat and alt space and understanding what the basics of the metaverse are led me to where I am right now in wormhole and having a strong point of view. And that was all from jumping on that trend way too early with, you know, uh, a lot of stuff we were doing at studio 71 and their investment teams with ProSieben and they invested in jaunt VR and yeah, sure. All that stuff failed, but it was a really cool failure because <laughs> I learned so much from it. I, I, I completely agree with you. I, my biggest failure in my career was after being in retail in China and at the beginning of the internet, I pitched to HBO. There was no Netflix at the time. It was in 2007. A series was which you could have put it as the Silicon Valley in Hong Kong, but there was no Silicon Valley at the time and I hadn't lived in the Silicon Valley. So I, was, I wanted to talk into a comedy series, mm -hmm. you know, about our industry. And I pitched it really well, being a marketing guy. But then when I tried to, to learn the screenwriting craft for two years and a half, I yeah. failed. I was not at the level of the Hollywood guys over there with their Oscars and whatnot, especially sure. as a native French speaker. Yeah. But that failure, when the Apple App Store came out and I came back to video game marketing, mm. I was a much better storyteller. Right. And I now knew how to structure a story and why and what was the emotional and the psychological. And so a lot of what I was winging earlier when doing trailers and whatnot, now I knew the rules. And mm -hmm. it became much clearer to myself right? <laughs> and maybe to my bosses what I was doing and why. Oh, what yeah. What is it we're trying to build here? 
Oh, sure. No, it's, it's, it's so funny because LinkedIn is such an overwhelmingly positive platform, but I've been talking a lot about NFTs over the past year and blockchain, and it's just been such a big part of our business that it would be a fool not to talk about it. It's actually <laughs> been pretty shocking how many pretty respected people in the industry have like sent me private messages saying I'm the worst and I'm destroying the world and, you know, or people who I've known for many years reach out to me and just say, you are garbage for supporting this movement. And I say, look, I'm not, I don't support any movement. I, what I do is I try to learn if something is a cultural phenomenon, how do you learn? Well, you learn by joining these communities, right? I'll go buy, spend a hundred dollars on a picture of a, of a panda or an ape or whatever it is. Because then I get to join the Discord. I get to see what they're doing in the Discord. I get to see the prices go up and down and you start learning, right? So it's so funny because a lot of people I think like want to pick whether something's a success or failure early and then like stay very firm in that point of view. And I always try to take like the culture is king, queen, and jester point of view where it's like it's going to rule, rule with an iron fist, a soft touch, and it'll always fool you. And the only way that you can really play along with culture is if something is a phenomenon, whether it's dumb or silly or crazy or poorly developed, just learn it, right? Just go in and learn the heck out of it because you'll be so far ahead when and if these things become the next big thing. And frankly, I've I've made more money from NFTs this year than I've made from any job ever in my life in a year. So it's like, it pays off. Back when I was in e-commerce mm-hmm. at Lixang, we were shipping from China and Japan, whatever came out in video games and shipping it to the Western world. Yeah. So we went into the business of selling the future. Because mm-hmm. as you know, back then what was coming out in Japan was ahead by six months. Right. And every now and then we had outliers in our statistics that we didn't predict would sell so well. And mm-hmm. It was one of them, which was the Dreamcast color case. You could change. You had to unscrew all your Dreamcast yeah. just to change the color. But no mod chips involved. Just you, know, you were voiding your warranty just to make translucent blue or something. Huh. My partner was an engineer. He couldn't understand such behavior. Sure, <laughs> because, you sure. Know, engineer, irrational. Yeah. And he told me, I don't understand how we sell so many of those. Mm-hmm. And I told them, it's not my job to understand why people want to buy it. Right. It's my job to source it at the best price possible and have enough of it in the inventory. Right. And have good yeah. pictures on it, of it on the internet. Right. Why you want it? You're not me. I don't know. Yeah. And as a Dreamcast <laughs> owner on the... Things. Yeah. At the, I owned a Dreamcast at the time. And you better believe I would have bought those for a couple of reasons. <laughs> One is who really uses their warranty for those kind of gaming systems. Like for the most part, you just bring it back to target and they'll just be like, here's cash back, whatever. Right. You can throw the case back you on. Privileged American. You privileged right. American. That's, That's not true. the same in Europe. <laughs> That's very American of me, but it's true. Right. Like any store in America, you're just like, Hey, this broke. <laughs> They're not going to like keep <laughs> the warranties voided. And then second of all, it's like gamers care deeply about the aesthetics of their gaming setups. And like, even back then, people like to think that came along with the PC generation and the lights. That's not true. Like the the idea of having like a perfect gaming setup, even in the 80s, like with the big wood box TVs and everything, it was very, very important because you spend hours in front of that thing. And it goes back to status. It yeah. was a skin. 
Right. It was, it was. skin for your Dreamcast. Yeah, <laughs> Instead totally. of just skinning your character, right. you were skinning the console because who does that? Right, totally. <laughs> it's like smoking it. something nobody else dares to smoke. You know right. what I mean? At 50... Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and the Dreamcast was such a good system too. By the way, side oh, side note. Some of the games on it, like let's not get started on that because we're gonna still be here in hours. Right, yeah. <laughs> I just uh I remember the many hours of playing Crazy Taxi on that thing, but you were so, right and Power Stone and Power Stone oh, yeah. 2 and Skies oh, yeah. of Arcadia. Skies of Arcadia was so a very good. underrated RPG. Yeah. yeah. There were so many great RPGs on Dreamcast. Oh that yeah. Never hit the mainstream due to the you know ill-fated, Ill, Ill, I don't know how to say that due to the demise of the system that it failed too early. So right. there were many gems on that console. Oh yeah, well Sega leaned in very hard to kind of core Japanese style RPG gaming, right? Like Nintendo constantly tried to like Americanize, 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 and Sony or Sega's like, screw that. Like we're gonna go straight up, like we're literally going to have am, like am, anime characters in fantasy star games. And I love yeah. that so much, it was so cool. They were like bringing you. You said you're a Super Nintendo fan, so am I. And I had a Super Famicom, so imported yeah. Japanese model and all that. And I feel like somehow the Dreamcast was like Super Nintendo taking taken to the future. Yeah, it oh, kept yeah. the soul and the style of the Super Nintendo, but with <laughs> computing <Yeah>. power. <laughs> I agree. Like yeah. I love the Nintendo sixty four, but it did not feel like it was in the same universe as Super Nintendo. Like. It felt messy, and it's because yeah. it was the birth of like polygon style art. But on the other hand, there was a lot of games where I was like, I literally don't know what to look at. I don't, you know, I thought Star Fox was messy. A lot of people hate me for hating on Star Fox, but like, <laughs> it's mad. Like it's it was tough to follow. You know, I, I would say if you look back twenty years later, Mario Kart sixty four and Golden Eye saved it. Yeah, oh but yeah. Apart from that, it was a big huge mess. Oh sure, absolutely. With totally wrong economic decisions for the time, and I even made up a the theory at the time, which is in the video games industry you get two console cycles of leading the industry, mm -hmm. and then the arrogance gets to your head and you start falling. So right. Sony with the PlayStation Three, Nintendo with the Nintendo sixty four is that moment where you think we are so strong and so dominant. Mm -hmm. nobody can take us. And then right, Sony right. arrives with the CD-ROM. Right. It's so true. It's so and you're true. not looking at it because you're Nintendo. Why would you, why oh, would yeah. you worry about this audio device manufacturer? Right, right. Yeah. And then every once in a while, Nintendo will come out with the Wii U and go, oops, okay, my bad. <laughs> but they needed the Wii U in order to get to the Switch, which is such a fantastic console. So, yeah. Yep, yep. Learning about tablets. Okay. Yeah. We did okay. Yeah. How, how crazy was it? So at full screen, how many employees were there when you left? Uh, 500 and something, I think. It was it was a lot. Because, we, yeah, we went from a little one room on the Hayden track, and then we moved to Culver Studios into one of the buildings. We quickly outgrew that and took over four buildings there. My last day at work was the last day at Culver Studios before they moved to the Playa Complex. I think the Playa Complex was like four or five floors. It was a huge building. Um, but yeah, it was just astronomical growth. It felt like one day you just kind of woke up and we went from everyone being able to attend one big meeting into one room. And then it was just like, suddenly we had to rent out movie theaters once a quarter in order for everyone to sit, you know? 
How did you cope with it? Uh, I just tried to keep my universe small because this this is the the truth about larger companies and it's not full screen's fault. It's everything is when companies start growing and there's a lot of money throwing around, people can become political animals and it's really hard to know. Like a lot of people aren't there for the work. They're there for their career. And you know, those you can identify those types of people and keep them at arm's length quickly. You'll do better in your career. So like full screen, as it started growing, there was a lot of people who were trying to kind of plant their flag at, in full screen. Align so, on the CV. Align yeah. on the CV before oh, yeah. doing your own thing. And they knew that if I became an SVP, that they might not become an SVP, right? Mm. So it's like, it, it got very aggressive, um, really like difficult near the end. And so what I decided to do was just double back on the fundamentals, right? Like somebody who's a basketball coach whose team is struggling, right? I just kept very close to my team and said, look, we sign great talent. We manage them for success. We treat everyone internally like people who are helping our talent. Like go talk to the sales team and pitch your talent. Go to the originals team and try to get them a show. Like do all of that stuff, but don't let the noise bother you, right? Because like people would literally come into our department and say, your department is worthless. The future of full screen is SVOD. Like people would say stuff like that. And I'm like, Hey, everyone on the team, don't listen to that person. That person's just being a jerk because they work on the SVOD side. So, like, don't worry <laughs> about that person. We'll just keep following the fundamentals and, you know, growing our business. And, you know, ultimately, I would, I can confidently say that the most valuable segment of full screen looking back at the entire run of the company was always the network. They tried other things. The other things just didn't work in the same way. And the reason why ultimately the Studio 71s of the world are still around and the full screens of the world ended up folding under is because they got away from their network too far. They got away from their core capabilities and they weren't able to convert it into an SVOD or original content for other platforms or whatever else they were doing. Yeah, I, I think at some point they diversified so much that it was even difficult for me from the outside mm-hmm. to summarize in one sentence what are these companies doing. Oh, yeah. And, and I don't think and on the inside... 71 is a good example because I think you worked for the US office, right? But mm-hmm. they started off as a pretty lean and mean and successful agency from Germany. Oh, yeah. And they were dominating in the German market. And then they, they became this huge thing through acquisitions and office opening. And yeah. for me as a buyer, why did it make my life more difficult? It's because before I could just say, oh, I need some big talents in Germany. Let's call it Studio 71. Mm-hmm. At some point when you do too much and you're not number one in any of it, right. I don't have that thing that I need to call that company. I'm like, why do I have to call Studio 71 again? Oh, I could call them for anything, mm-hmm. but what is the one thing I need to call them today when I need it? Right. That's where diversification becomes tricky, I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, hindsight is easy, but when ProSieben bought Collective Digital Studios, where I was working at the time, and they rebranded to Studio 71, it was one of those kind of directives of we're making this a global brand. I don't think it was the right move. So I feel like collected, Collective Digital Studio meant something to the American market at that time, where it was like, it was a little elevated. It's where higher tiers of talent went. They essentially hired me to help scale, right? Because I was the scale guy over at full screen. And they went the same period of time where we went to 8 billion monthly views. They were kind of stuck at a billion. So they brought me in as COO to help them kind of do that. And we did that. Um, 
but ultimately along the way, it was, I think a lot of people were, were arguing about what Studio 71 should be, right? Like a lot of people are like, well, we want to evolve to be this other thing completely. And I always thought that it was enough to support the next generation of creators. And that means a lot of things. It means distribution. It means merchandising. It means 360 management. It means tours. Like I, to me, that's enough, right? It's worked for Hollywood for a hundred years. But I think a lot of people, because it's digital, kind of go crazy a little bit and say, well, where's the next $10 million line of business? Where's the next $20 million line of business? I just think it's the wrong way to look at it. So, you know, for, for what it's worth, I think that a lot of times when an acquisition happens, that's when I start getting at odds with the upper level people because we have this stock price culture that oftentimes ruins the fundamentals of a business. Yeah. And also ProSieben was coming from television. So right. different mindsets and yeah, they, they, different, they, they were not going into it out of passion. Let's put yeah. it this way. They oh, were yeah. just looking at some numbers and seeing that linear media was going down. Where was the views going mm-hmm. to the internet? Let's invest in the internet. Right. But without necessarily, when you look at Brendan Gahan, Ben, ben Grubbs, uh, yourself, you started early in the space. You were young. You were passionate, but you were also consuming the stuff, right? You oh, yeah. were watching a lot of YouTube, and you you were friendly with those creators. I have a few friends now who, after working with them, you know, you become friends. And I guess it's different for the guy in the suit with a spreadsheet who oh, yeah. invested for the sake of making money. I mean, when you, YouTube you first came out, a level. Yeah, I remember when YouTube first came out, I was fresh out of film school and it was a huge deal that you could upload five minutes of content without paying hosting fees. Like me and my friends were taking our mini DV cameras and our copy of Final Cut Pro I won at a film festival back in college and we were shooting comedy shorts. We were trying to be, I guess we didn't know them at the time, we were trying to be Smosh. And (laughs) I mean, we just didn't, like I, I don't have that creator gene in me where it's like, wake up every day and be a starving artist until you hit like, I, I need to have a day job and structure. Like I need that to be happy. But sometimes I look back at that and I'm like, if we would have just kept focusing on getting a sketch out every day or a sketch out every two days, maybe we would have been Rhett and Link by this point. But you know, and instead what I did was learned about the industry, right? From uploading videos and going, now I know how important th- custom thumbnails are. And I know what a big deal it is to make 50 cents per thousand views. And, you know, you learn that by being a creator. I still try to keep that creator part of me alive as much as I possibly can, because you you can only really empathize with creators by being one yourself, even if it's at a small level. I have the same thing that maybe not going as far as saying being a creator, but when something is new, I do it with my own hands. Yeah, I never delegate or give instructions about something to a collaborator, a staff, a creator without having seen how it actually works myself. Because otherwise you become the theoretical a-hole, you know, who comes up with great ideas that are impractical, impossible to make because of this stupid reason that everybody knows about. Oh, 100%. (laughs) Yeah, like join, join the community. Like... You want to learn about this thing? Join the community. You know, like if if you have not jumped onto Central Land and navigated what a metaverse looks like, it's time, right? Like, yeah, you have to really you, absorb yeah. this stuff. Otherwise, you're the guy asking around why at all the meetings. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. Why? Because, because that's oh. how everybody's doing it. <laughs> One of my favorite things to do, right. if, if I feel like being a jerk when I'm around my like businessy friends, if somebody's criticizing the valuation of a company or an acquisition, I like to be like, oh, when you bought that product, what did you think? Or when you signed on to that software, what did you think? And if they go, oh, I never used it before. It's like, well, maybe you shouldn't be criticized, you know? How can you criticize the $100 million valuation of Clubhouse if you haven't gone on it? You know what I mean? So yeah, I, I'm a firm believer and you got to try it out because that's the only way that you can see the future of something. Absolutely, man. And you worked a lot with Dude Perfect, didn't you? Was that during your time at full screen or Studio 71 or even so separately? Yeah, we did. When I was at Mob Crush, we did a branded campaign with Dude Perfect. Oh. We did... um. A PUBG what a mobile video. <laughs> what What's a that? Coup what a coup for mobile. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We yeah we were working with PUBG Mobile. Um. Uh. The seller Brett. Uh. Brett sold it. Um. And we were trying to find uh, a new way to introduce their game to non-core gaming audience. They're like, we want young. We want male. We want mobile first. And I've just I've loved Dude Perfect's team for a long time. The whistle. They were great. Um. I had some contacts there. So I reached out to him and I said, "Hey, we want we're looking for an audience just like yours. Is there something here?" And at the end they did like a paintball tournament where they had balloons over their head and they played PUBG Mobile essentially against each other. Got 30 million views in the first month organic. So wildly wildly successful. So everyone got a great deal and everyone was happy. But ultimately what we were most happy about is we got to do a video game campaign that wasn't just watching someone play the video game, right? Right. Just the spirit that, that, of it and introduce that, it to a new audience. That's always what I'm looking for as well. Of course, I want some of the gameplay footage in it. Oh, sure. I don't want to, to end up so left field that, oh, what was the product? You know, like right. we see on TV sometimes. Yeah. But I like, yeah, when integration makes sense. Like some of the ones I've done in sports mm -hmm. or in uh, with Pagani in racing, sports leans itself really well to it. Because oh, you yeah. can always have the physical element of the real life sport, but you're right that shooters as well. Shooters yeah. as well. Have well, what's interesting? FPS videos. Yeah, they both kind of have the same spirit, the sports and video games. Because I know a lot of people who play video games, but would never watch somebody play a video game. Right? Like I, I love game streamers, but unless the game stream is really like interesting, I'm a, I'm one of them. Right. I don't like to sit and watch somebody play a video game silently. They need to be like funny or interesting or charming or, you know. There you um, go. Dr. Disrespect gets me. Right. Dr. I was the guy who would never watch a guy playing video game, but yeah. then Dr. Disrespect made me laugh so hard that I kept right. watching him. <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, there's people that are great. And like, I, I fell into like uh, angry video game nerd very early on YouTube. And like that, that's what made me get it. I could watch him play 8-bit video games and insult them and be, you know. <laughs> So like, I would laugh so hard when I'd watch that stuff, but also I don't want to watch, I would not be compelled to download PUBG mobile if I was just watching some kid play the game. But if somebody was playing paintball and like shooting each other above the head and there was all these interesting weapons they were introducing and these loot crates falling, like that, that might get me right. Because it's like, holy crap, this feels like a big Epic game with big Epic pieces in it. So yeah, I, like I, I want to. I'm always trying to encourage video game publishers to think bigger about their marketing, but it seems yeah. like video game publishers generally don't, right? They generally the, just the, like the play I the dark game. Yeah, the way I say it is, you want your marketing to become a spectacle in and of itself. Yeah, 
you oh, yeah. want me to want to watch your marketing because right. it's so well made. That, and that's how somehow esports tournaments, Supercell, for example, does a great right. job at that. Oh, sure. Um, whether they do Super Bowl commercial with Liam Neeson and it's funny. Right. And then they do a big event and it's a spectacle in a stadium and you have stakes and you have the super fans and you have the visuals. Right. That's my view of marketing, that even if I don't play your game, I still want to be part of your universe somehow because, oh, it, sure. because it feels cool. Yeah, 100% agreed on that. Yeah, I, well, I think video game marketing still has a ways to go, but there's, you're starting to see it's peeking out a little bit what it can be. Like, I love the idea of uh, item drops within game streams. You start to see it more on Twitch. Facebook's got that capability. It's so smart because the idea of like incentivized viewing, it just gets me across the finish line in terms of conversion in a way that most things don't because if I'm watching a live stream, I don't want to navigate away from it. So the generally click-through is less less strong. But if I know I'm getting a skin sometime if I keep watching this thing, I can sit and enjoy it and absorb it and then also get that skin and you get the thrill and dopamine hit of that. And it's not overly <laughs> costly of the uh, for the publisher either, especially if it's digital goods. All right. Of, of all the collabs, and I, I was, first of all, I was drop naming Dude Perfect because I really, really like them, not only because of the views, but because they're also so reliable, so professional. Yeah. They have that athlete mentality so mm -hmm. somehow you can tell they would have been professional athletes if it wasn't for youtube they, they oh, would yeah. have had a career at any decade of the last century no matter what the medium is if there was yeah. a way to take them or film them they would have made it in this world oh yeah very hard to find in the influencer world too for any of us that have been working with a lot of influencer marketing a lot of them are kids who've never had other jobs before who suddenly start making millions of dollars so when you say the due date is this date, the only thing they can relate that to is you're either being my parent or you're being my high school teacher, right? So, <laughs> so neither are school, They tend to do it the night just before. Right. So, <laughs> As they do with influencer marketing, you can give them three weeks of lead time to do one Instagram post and they'll be hitting you up a half hour before the post is due being like, I, my camera like, broke on my phone. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, why did you think I sent you the feedback so early? Right. Why, totally. why do you think I anticipated on all Yes. I mean, we really <laughs> risk mitigated against that when we were when I was running the networks of talent by we would set calendar reminders where it's like two weeks before the campaign, we'd send them an email. This is what the email looks like a week before, where we say, Hey, can I see a draft of it? And then three days before we're like, Hey, I haven't gotten your draft yet. Can we make sure like you have to put that constant pressure on or else they will. They'll wait until five minutes before the due date. They'll blow through it. And the brand will say, well, I'm not paying them five grand anymore. Now I'm paying them three grand or now I'm not paying them at all. And then the talent gets mad and it becomes very messy. With hindsight, I think the good system would have been to lie to them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And to the tell due them date is early. in one week, not two. Yeah, absolutely. And that'd be like, good news. They pushed back the due date by a few right. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's really true. That's a that's actually a good method. We I should start doing that now. Oh, okay. <laughs> I got to start lying that's more. Right. <laughs> all right. What was of all the collabs you've done and all that? What was your favorite campaign of all times? Oh, geez. Um, that's a great question. Um, you know the the dude perfect one was definitely up there. 
Um, I really liked uh, at uh, at Facebook we did a Mario tennis tournament with Venus and Serena Williams and a bunch of other that celebrities. That, that yeah, was that was you. Well, I mean, it was a uh, it was it was Facebook it game. Effort, but you were in the room. Yes, I exactly. Watched, I watched as a spectator heating popcorn, and I was very yeah. impressed by that campaign. Well, it was just one of like it's a it's a pretty big ask. It was during COVID, so it's not like we could go over to their homes and set it up. So. We were working with a really awesome company. I wish I could remember their name, give them a shout out. We were working with an awesome company that sent essentially streaming packages where the Nintendo Switch right out of the box would be streaming capable. So there was no way to screw it up. The game, you have to connect and friend people and like that was all set up. So it was pretty technically complex to do, but then it went off without a hitch. It was wonderful. It raised a ton of money for COVID. So it was cool. And it was Mario Tennis, iconic yeah. brand, Serena Williams. Yeah. The athlete nobody can get. Right. It was, it was, <laughs> and it was like light, right? Like every Mario is accessible to everybody. So it wasn't like sometimes esports can be very alienating, you know? Correct. If you go to an Overwatch League tournament, Legends, you're either part of it or you're not. You're oh, not yeah. bringing Serena Williams to League of Legends. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've played <laughs> League of Legends a fair amount of times. So I go to League of Legends esports tournaments. So I have to constantly lean over and be like, what just happened? Because it's like, <laughs> it moves fast. The camera moves fast. It's like, it's hard to remember everybody's powers. Like, there's so many characters. So. But yeah, it's a, uh, you know, Mario Tennis, anyone can get behind. It's just tennis, right? So, and it right. was the tennis stars. So it was a very cool, it was a cool way to do it. That's what, that's another advantage in marketing sports games is like, even if you don't know my game, you know the sports. Yeah. So I don't have to re-explain you all the rules and the physics and all that. People know about it. Where in League of Legends or other fictional universes, you have to bathing them at least a good 15 minutes to even understand the mechanics of the movements, the motions. You know right. how a tennis ball moves when you when you hit it with a racket, even if you've never done that in your life. Right. You you, you have to be a monk not to have ever seen tennis right. Right. anywhere. And part of that is why I loved Rocket League when that started taking off as an esports so fast. It's because it's like, oh, I get it. It's car soccer. It's right. like right. defying physics cars. So there's always that corollary where somebody could, they could watch it for a minute and go, oh, I get it, car soccer, right? So it wasn't like the Overwatch of the world where everything moves so fast where you literally, if you're not really into that game, it's hard to tell what's happening during those tournaments. Rocket League is one of those games where you go, why didn't I think of that? Right. <laughs> why did nobody think of that in 40 years of video games? Scar with soccer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Male audiences, that's what they love both. You merge it. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> and what was it? Was it Final Fantasy X that had Blitzball, which was essentially just like soccer, but it, it was like the the same thing as soccer, but underwater, but everyone could breathe underwater. It was like very close to that correlator. And I played that, even though it was a side game, and I played that game a lot because it's like <laughs> It's so easy to understand, right? It's just soccer. Soccer is so easy to understand. Yeah, yeah. All right. And what was your most vivid failure? Oh, man, where do I begin? Um, I'd say that the most vivid failure in 2011, before I started working at full screen, I was ready to become a, a entrepreneur, and I started my own podcast network. Um it was called Comedy Podcast Network, and my goal was to 
sign all of the great comedy podcasts in the Los Dave Angeles Chappelle, area. Dave Chappelle, all that. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There was oh, a ton man. of awesome I podcasts. I would have partnered with you and failed with you if you had called me at the time. There we go. There, like, <laughs> even looking back, like the kind of Joe Rogans and WTFs of the time, they weren't part of a network yet. So if I would have been able to keep doing it, it would have been great. But I was just so early. I ended up signing like six or seven podcasts and I was going to brands and they were like, podcast marketing, what? And like, I think that like Audible let us be in their affiliate program, but it was like, okay, we're going to make a hundred bucks a month. So I tried it really hard for a year and I never made money. I ended up having to like freelance on the side in order, and I was, you know, it's not like I was young, young. I was doing this when I was 30 and I was, you know, went a whole year of just mind-numbing failure trying to get this thing off the ground trying to get people to invest in it and but all of this led to me ending up at full screen when i ran out of money and then you know oh that's right before full screen that was right before, right. that was what i was doing directly before full screen so in so a way yeah, it was learning experience. yeah learning experience going through the the cycle of signing people right. pushing out content that must do some uh, metric uh, in order to monetize right you already knew the supply chain somehow well what was so funny about that is at the time podcasts were really hard you had to custom program your feeds your rss feeds so a lot of people couldn't launch a podcast because it took actual coding to launch and you had to like upload via ftp server your mp3 file and put in the metadata tag so I thought what I could do is go in and educate the market of creators in order to have the collective bargaining to sell ads. And then I went right over to full screen where I essentially just did that for YouTubers. So, you know, in a way it was kismet. There was just, it's much easier to do when you have a YouTube CMS than when I was literally staying up late at night, you know, coding the a feed for tomorrow's drop of a podcast. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about recent events, what do you think of those uh, Team C's and Team Trees efforts by Mr. Beast? And also I'm... Casey Neistat going social impact. It, it feels to me like the space is maturing into a direction that I quite like. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, social impact has kind of been a part of online creators for, I mean, if you look at like Project for Awesome and like there's been tons of money raised by creators. I think that there's always been a little bit of that, you know, global optimism, but also there's been a fair amount. Of, it's a, I, I'm not going to be naive about it. It's a fair amount of brand building too, because someone like Mr. Beast, there's an incredible amount of cynicism that could be built around it. Right. Like a, a lot of what he does, I think his content is great. So I never want to sound like it, I'm judgy, but it is pretty clickbaity, right? And a lot of the copycats of it really push out a lot of smaller creators and he sucks a lot of air out of the room. And uh, you can't fault somebody for being so good they suck air out of the room. But, you know, it's, you know, when you're getting that kind of attention, it's very hard for a smaller creator to come through. So if you're able to position yourself as, yes, I'm a capitalist. Yes, I'm making money. Yes, I'm making a lot of money. But also I was getting all this plastic out of the ocean, right? It's kind of like, coca-cola running recycling programs right where it's like hey we're not bad guys over here look at all the plastics we're recycling yeah. you know if coca-cola recycled all the plastic it generated mm -hmm. i would love them for doing that oh yeah there'd be no need for team c's then they'd be all set but you know i mean some of it is yeah if you're building a real brand then you have to have 
uh, what's what's your social good message, and you know what's your what's your look yes. and feel, and if you were if you were a, a clothing brand, what would you be like? You have to go through those exercises. So the cynical part of me says, yes, these big people are going through those exercises. The non-cynical part of me says, yeah, but also this generation is just more globally optimistic and wants to help more than a Coca-Cola. I think. I certainly hope. So the, the, the cynical side of me sees what you said. They're sucking the air out of a room. Yeah, why a Mr. Beast reacts channel? Yeah. Just so that he can react with his face to everything else that everybody has done. Does he need that? You're right. right. You can feel a bit of predatorial uh it's thinking. inauthentic. Yeah, In, like a re- yeah. I've I've Mr. always Beast thought Right, there, channel and all that. I don't think I've ever seen a React channel after Kids React that to me felt authentic. Right, like yeah. React channels have <laughs> always been. Well, originally it was about stealing viral videos and then claiming fair use because you're making faces to it. Correct. And the other side of me is like easy creativity. Right, like you don't have to think yeah. that hard to do a React. So I did, did I, you see that it's an sketch about React videos. I don't think so, they, no. When you have like two guys who are dressed like YouTube stars and they they react to things that are super well known. Oh, and they, they pretend they hear it for the first time. Oh, no. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. That? Yeah. And I know that Bo Burnham on his last comedy special did like a reaction parody where he was reacting to his own video and then he was reacting <laughs> to the reacting of the video. Like... But those, I think those things deserve to be parodied a bit because a lot of reaction videos are, it's about the video they're reacting to more so than it's about them. You see it on TikTok all the time now. There's people who are becoming huge, essentially watching someone else's video and then laughing about it. And because that, that video catches on more than the original video, they get the attention, even though they didn't make the original video. To me, I think it's maybe my comedy background where there's so much about stand-up comedians stealing from other stand-up comedians and it being so shameful. The idea of somebody building a business off of reacting to other people's content or stealing their memes for an Instagram feed or, you know, green screen in the background of their TikTok, just, it's not technically illegal. It just feels gross. Yes, that's true. That's true. However, on the optimistic side of things, what I liked about Mr. Beast efforts is that, first of all, he didn't have to do that. He could right. have kept doing hundreds of millions of videos with a Squid Game video yeah. and not bother. So right. as an economist, and I think you are too, mm-hmm. you always compare to the status quo. Sure. And it's better if creators care, even if it's about their image, mm-hmm. but there is some good being done as a consequence. Oh, yeah. And what I really appreciated is the fact he used this time to go to the beach and actually clean up that Republican Dominican beach, because that's an example that anybody out there can take. Followers, no followers, famous or not famous, rich or not rich. This is not about money or donating. This is about donating your time and cleaning up maybe just your backyard. Yeah. If we have to clean up the planet, at some point, no matter how much money we throw at it, Mm-hmm. somebody's going to have to do it. If it's not millions of robots, it's millions of hands. So we can oh, yeah. all, and that's what I felt was missing from the old media, mm-hmm. that they were giving us a lot of anxiety about the planet. It's it's horrible what's happening, but what can we do about it? Oh, maybe don't use a straw. Right, what? yeah. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> or so you know when you look at where pollution actually comes from home. yeah like yeah. when you see that most pollution comes from corporate polluters and then they're like well you should drive a more efficient car it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah. is that You're really guilty. the problem you yeah. are guilty i mean i get Let's that every little bit helps you. but the data doesn't support that the data supports that you major corporations who run these media companies should probably start thinking about your practices a little bit more <laughs> you know? you're right but at the same time you don't want just to blame the big companies you want to right. get somebody telling you this is a little call to action this is yeah. the little you can do plant a few trees Right. It's not going to hurt. And I like it when it's show rather than just tell. Mm -hmm. And it's do rather than saying, let's donate money and all put it on a bank account. Yeah. And then what? (laughs) Now, there was a really disturbing article I read recently about uh, rich and famous people and their charitable donations as a percentage of uh, wealth. And it turns out that some of the people who you think of as being super charitable, like, gates and oprah and stuff and a percentage of wealth actually donate far less to charity than i do because i'm (laughs) poorer than they are so it's like it's not really it's them yes they're being charitable i'm glad they're doing it but it's it's they're not it's not affecting their life at all they're not actually sacrificing anything you know Correct. Whereas Jimmy going out cleaning on the beach, he's sacrificing something. He's giving his time. Right. And that's something, for example, I like from Nicholas Head, somebody really not high profile, but the co-founder of Rovio, Angry Birds, and in really the fast hyper growth years of 2012, 2013, when there was like a day with kids with uh, from disfavored neighborhoods from Finland, and there were a lot of giveaways. Mm-hmm. He was there for three hours at night as a C- COO and co-founder. And I was like, oh, that's not everyone. And there were no cameras to document it. You would never hear it. I, I was yeah. like, oh, this comes from the heart. That's because cool. you could have easily have sent your staff and taken the pictures and put it on the Facebook page and it was done. That you attend three hours, that shows me a, 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 a great man. Right. Basically. Yeah. That's true. They're actually using their time for good. Yeah, and we're not getting that time back. You cannot right. get a loan from the bank or raise it from a VC. That's a fact. <laughs> All right, my friend. Thank you so much for joining the show. It, the time the time flew by as it expected, did. as always yeah. with you. <laughs> yeah, this was fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining and for everybody at home. Big uh, patreon.com slash big karma if you want to support us or learn more about what we do. And if you want to get more insights about the creator economy, the metaverse, I think the right place to follow Phil nowadays would be on LinkedIn, wouldn't it? That's a fact. Just search Phil Ranta. I'm Phil Ranta on every major platform, but LinkedIn, Twitter are my two primaries. LinkedIn is where the algorithm gives gives you more juice at the moment. So that's where you post. LinkedIn likes me (laughs) a lot more than the other ones. That's cool. <laughs> the other ones want you to pay. They like there you. They go. just want there you to pay. Yeah, exactly. They like me as a consumer. LinkedIn likes me, you know? <laughs> Until they have something to sell you. Don't sure, sure. sure. <laughs> Thank you so much, Phil. Have a great day and may karma be with you.